Hey there, beautiful people. Welcome to Fantai, the home for complex and complicated conversations about the gray areas in our lives. I'm entertainment journalist Travel Anderson. And I'm always taller in person, but probably lighter skin too, Jared Hill. On the show this uh, week, we are talking- What? What's that? I am always taller in person and probably also lighter, so. Yikes. Um, uh, On the show this week, we are talking about colorism. It's part two. We've got a fantastic guest that you're gonna be really excited to hear from. Um, but up first, it is time for us to pass the popcorn. We are talking about Idris Elba had a recent post on the social medias that uh, caught my attention and I I reposted it and then started thinking about it and wasn't really sure how I felt about it. So I wanted to bring it to y'all to get your feedback. Um, and Travel, I'm sure you will have some thoughts. This is what the graphic said on Instagram. It says, quote, people in the public eye get verified on social media, symbolized with a blue tick. You gotta love British language. The process of verification requires them to prove their identity so everyone knows who is speaking. Social media companies should make this mandatory for all users. Currently, social media is like boarding a plane and not having to show ID. That would never happen. If cowards are being supported by a veil of privacy and secrecy, then social media is not a safe space. It is an airplane, well, he says aeroplane, that allows travelers to wear balaclavas. Uh, if cowards want to spout racial rhetoric, then say it with your name, not your username. We should say that there was a sporting event of some sort. I think soccer, soccer. and the black guys in the soccer team apparently have been getting a lot of anti-black racist commentary on social media. So all of this is is related to that. Go. Se- seemingly, yeah. Um, yes. There was there was a lot in this that I thought was interesting. So as a person who has been on the receiving end of, you know, a lot of hate speech from anonymous people on social media. White people. Yes, but like this past week made made five years after the Melania thing, right? I think that was on Sunday. And so like that was an, after that, I have gotten like things from Trump supporters, you know, for years. Now, mind you, it hasn't been like a huge amount of stuff, but like I'll get things like, telling me to kill myself or hateful things in my DMs or whatever from Trumpy people. And so from that perspective, I got the general gist of this idea of, of what he was trying to say. But I thought there were a few issues in in the analogy that he was drawing. And I wanted to point those things out. Number one, he says that getting on social media is like getting on an airplane. And I think that analogy just doesn't work. Love Idris Elba. That didn't make sense. Social media, he says, is it is not a safe space um, when we do it this way. Social media ain't ever been a safe space. Like, social media is very much like a public square in that, like, it is just like walking out into the sidewalk, right? Like, it is, you never know who's going to be uh, passing by. You never, you can choose certain people, but things can get retweeted or shared or whatever. And, like, they're not necessarily from people that you you chose to be uh, in your social media community. Um he talked about it being like balaclavas, which I had to to Google because I wasn't sure what that meant. And basically it's like a, a head and face covering. I just thought that was kind of rich in a time when so many of us have to wear masks when we're going anywhere, especially on airplanes. Um, and then him saying that it, it being mandatory is a bit like, the mandatory piece of it f- strikes me as a bit like voter ID, right? It sounds seemingly logical but then when you apply it practically it excludes a lot of people who either don't have access to id 
who aren't comfortable with putting their ID online, uh, live in communities or countries where they're not allowed to speak out, um, and social media is used a lot for organizing overseas. Um, and so there's that element of it that doesn't necessarily work for me with the idea of it being mandatory. The thing that I do agree with here is that people should have more accountability for what they post online, uh, especially if it's violent or harmful or threatening language. And I think that platforms are going to have to figure out a better way to manage their users' engagement, which is something that we talked about a good amount in our Shade Room episode, where we're talking about how spicy those comments can get and then how, how clearly it seems like they use their headlines to kind of pander to that audience or to try to incite that audience might be better language. Um, and so it's, it's I, I get where he's coming from on this, but I don't know that I can fully buy it. What do you think? Something's got to be done. And what we do know is that more often than not, the people who are getting the hate, right, are folks whose identities are connected to our our social media platforms um, because they're either they're an extension of the brand or, you know, of, of our jobs or whatever the case may be. And so many people um, who, who aren't visible in that particular way don't have to um do that and and some people could say that the celebrity or whatever or the visible person also right doesn't have to be on social media at all or can create and craft a social media presence that is devoid of their their visibility you know so that you know the finstas and the the fwittas i don't know what a fake twitter is called alt that's what they call them alt twitters or whatever but then if you do that you don't necessarily get to to engage with that broader community right that theoretically you're able to do with your your face profile is what i'll call the 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 main non-alt profile and so i don't know what it is but i do think that there is something to be done to curb and regulate the hate and then also what about the folks who are using social media for the folks who are using like social media to like do death threats on the president or, you know, some, you know, diplomat or whatever, they find those motherfuckers. Whether you got your name associated or whatnot, whether you got your name associated or whatnot, they find those motherfuckers. Okay. Listen, okay. No, you're absolutely right. I I don't know. I mean, I'm a big fan of the alt Twitter, let me tell you. And we can I mean, how you that doing? Right. Oh cr- um <laughs> but- I, I, I appreciate my alt Twitter for what it does. But I, I do so think much. there's I do think there's some some interesting discussion about like whether or not you need to have an identity tied to your social media. Because like, number one, I wouldn't have an alt t- Twitter if my identity was tied to it. Again, different conversation for a different episode that we've maybe already done. But <laughs> I I <laughs> I feel like some of y'all caught what I did there, but everybody knows Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. But I I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And I'm also really grateful that I'm not tasked with figuring that out. So um, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to get into uh, our second part of our colorism conversation with one of you. What do I mean? You'll see when we come back. We have all been stuck in our houses for 
a year, two years. It feels like a century. Maybe you've gotten used to that work from home routine and your wardrobe similarly looks like you work from home. Stitch Fix can help you redefine your Zoom casual look and prep you for those of you who are, you know, going back to the office. I know they're sending out emails and stuff. All right. Stitch Fix offers clothing hand selected by expert stylists for your unique size, style, and budget. Every piece is chosen for your fit and your life and it's the easy solution to find it what makes you look and feel your best. You can try on pieces at home, which I love. Before you buy, you keep your favorites and you send back the rest. I already done told y'all, okay? I hate shopping in person. I like spending money, but I hate shopping in person for a variety of different reasons. And Stitch Fix is great because you can go on the site. They preview for you the items that have been selected by the stylist. And you can say yay or nay, and they can replace them. They send them out to your house. You try them on in your own closet, okay? You ain't got to worry about nobody gawking at you in the store, all right? You try them on. You figure out what fits, what you like, you keep, what you don't like. You drop in a pre-labeled bag, send it on back. It's real super, 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 super easy. And there's no subscription required. Just try Stitch Fix once or set up automatic deliveries. <laughs> You'll pay just $20 for a styling fee for each box, which gets credited toward the pieces you keep. And there are no hidden fees Ever. All right. So get started today at stitchfix.com slash fanti and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. All right. That's stitchfix.com slash fanti for 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. Stitchfix.com slash fanti. Not going to lie, feeling a little bit triggered and attacked by you saying people's wardrobes look like they work from home, but that's something I can talk about with my therapist. And you might want to <laughs> talk to yours about that. Uh, <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have. Life can be stressful. I've had plenty of conversation here on this show and on other shows here on Maximum Fun, actually, about my experience with depression and anxiety um, and suicidal ideation in the past. You may not be feeling down and out or depressed or like you're a total loss, but if your stress is high, you could probably use the chance to unload. Unload it and get it out. Talk to someone who's completely unbiased about your life. Someone who isn't going to judge um, or take sides on anything. You'll be surprised at how much it can help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And it's more affordable than in-person therapy. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And Fanti listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Fanti. Have your first session in under 48 hours, which is a huge deal because it is normally not that fast for people getting a therapist in person. You can do that at B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Fanti. That's betterhelp.com slash Fanti. Alrighty, beautiful people, as promised, for real this time, we're getting into part two of our conversation on colorism. If you did not catch the episode from two weeks ago, go check it out, but you will not need it necessarily to engage with us today. 
let's last go around. We talked about how colorism shows up, showed up in our lives as black queer folks. This week, we specifically want to speak to colorism in the media. All right. We both desperately wanted to get a black woman's perspective to be part of this segment of the convo. And while racking our brains, we got a feedback letter from a longtime listener. Uh, matter of fact, you will be familiar with her name. I've said it a couple times on this show. I think she was the very first person in the life of this show to truly drag the shit out of us. I believe that was episode 10 or something like that. <laughs> what was the dragging about? Because I do remember the name. It was it was the res- it was a response to our episode called I think the British are coming when we were talking about black British actors playing, you know, American black folks. That and makes she sense the for shit reasons out of us. That will be apparent in a few moments. But right. uh... <laughs> but as she should have, she was right. And so upon reading her email, her feedback email for the colorism episode, you know, from her perspective as a black queer woman, I just knew we needed to invite her on the show because she's perfect for this conversation. So you may not know her name yet, but you will soon. Actress, writer, model, filmmaker, all of the things. I also discovered that she's a poet. Check her out on YouTube. Portia don't check Bartley. me out on YouTube, please. God. <laughs> That is an Actually, older version of myself. <laughs> oh, no. No. So please check her out on YouTube. No, no. Scratch it. Scratch it. Oh scratch it. Y'all God. didn't hear that. It's fine. <laughs> Portia, welcome to Fanti. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Portia. <laughs> Thank you. I just need a minute to take down all my poetry videos. <laughs> you have until Thursday, so you're okay. You're okay. <laughs> Plenty of time. Um, So I'd like to start our convo today with actually a piece of feedback that we got from the previous Colorism Part 1 episode on Twitter. This comes from um, her handle is thequeenspeaks underscore. And she had a very simple question. Why do colorism conversations always try to be inclusive and nice to light-skinned people? They don't experience colorism. And I thought this was a great place to start this conversation because, one, I think she's right. And, two, I think that it is always important that, like, when we're having, you know, conversations about whether it's colorism, racism, transphobia, homophobia, etc., that we're centering, right, the voices of the folks, like, most impacted by whatever the ism in obia is and so i want to start there at asking you portia when you think back to the ways in which like colorism and colorism conversations have happened in your sphere of witnessing does that critique that the queen speaks offers do you feel like when we're talking about colorism there's like a preoccupation with light-skinned folks thoughts and feelings about it oh yeah 100 percent because it always resembles that episode of Blackish where they tried to tackle colorism, but it didn't really happen. Wherein it starts in a good place, it starts in an issue that is affecting a darker skinned person. And just for clarity, when I say darker skinned person, I mean people who are also brown skinned and dark skinned, because there is a difference, mm-hmm. even though people don't always want to point it out. So it starts being about us, but then there's always at least one light-skinned person who centers it in their experience often references that they were told they weren't black enough and all of a sudden we now have to coddle their feelings as they project on us and expect us to address issues in a way that only a medical professional a mental health professional can fix Portia's like talk to your therapist (laughs) right 
that you pay for. And even your therapist has a right to say no, because they can only take so many clients. So yeah, definitely. Because these are the two extremes I've experienced, especially in Los Angeles, where the light-skinned person is even very frustrated that it exists and they wish it wasn't a thing. And it's very clear in their day-to-day lives that it is. Or, Mm -hmm. as I said in the email, they won't even acknowledge they're light-skinned. They'll think Mm -hmm. they're the same shade as me. And just for context, I say Travel and I are about the same shade. Yeah. So they'll think they're the same shade as me sometimes. And Mm -hmm. they see colorism as like an over there issue. So either it's a thing of the past, or if it does exist in present day, it's not something that they actively participate in because their idea of colorism is one dimensional. So like Mm. racism, they think, lest you're making a very specific reference to someone's skin tone while punching them up, there's no way you can be colorist. And Mm. in the same Mm -hmm. breath, they also lean into colorist ideologies when you don't do the things they want. So which one is it? Pick a a side. Right. Pick a side. (laughs) Uh, But I was going to say to something that you just said, I was going to say that I do in a broad sense that like when when we have conversations about colorism, they're often harder to have i think because it's like a inter is it inter or intra jared intra an intra community you know Mm -hmm. conversation as opposed to when we're talking about racism we talk about the white motherfuckers you know Mm -hmm. and like we all can come together against those people but you know this idea of colorism i love those people there (laughs) those people Somebody's going to send us an email about that. But this idea of colorism, particularly in media, I feel like pops up on the internet every month or so um, with somebody saying something or doing something that like perpetuates it. And you brought up Blackish in that colorism episode. Kenya Barris is one of those people who gets a lot of rightful critique about his empire that he has built of TV shows that are rooted in what he says is like everything's based on his family right and he is married to a very light-skinned biracial black woman their kids are similarly you know that mixy color and so he casts with all of that in mind, whether that's blackish, grownish, mixedish, uh black AF, which we've talked about on this show before. And he It'll be interesting to did... see how oldish works out. <laughs> no, the new show, um, Oldish. The new show oh, it is Jennifer called Lewis. Oldish? Yeah, Jennifer Lewis and, and Lawrence Fishburne are gonna be in the new spinoff called Oldish. Hmm. I'll watch it. I mean, I'm like Jennifer Lewis, yes. Period, right? But, you know, Kenya Barris recently did a Hollywood Reporter cover story in which he was no holds bar, if you will, about his thoughts on some of the critiques, his thoughts on, you know, the industry at large. And, you know, one question that I wanted to ask, you know, Kenya basically asserts that his work is based on his life and so he should be able to do whatever the hell he wants. And part of me feels like there is space for that. But when what you do, what you want to do and what your when your life is a reflection of or can potentially perpetuate, right, these isms and obias such as colorism, I feel like you I feel like there should be a responsibility um, mm. um I know you feel differently about this, but I feel like 
and 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 then the responsibility I'm saying I'm specifically talking about is in the response to the art, not necessarily to the reflection of you know other people in the art itself. I feel like he was super dismissive and has been super dismissive of colorism uh, critiques, as opposed. To, I think you can in one voice say that this is all based on my life. That's why it looks that way, but also not dismiss that colorism is an issue in the industry. Right. Um, and I feel like he has not yet done that at least. And so I just wanted to, for both of you, your, your thoughts, feelings, responses go. As the light skinned person in the room, thank you for inviting me into the conversation. Um, I, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You're welcome. Um, this is, thank you. Right. Portion of the guest is going to say you're welcome. No, I, this is interesting to me because one, I don't think Kenya Barris has like an inherent responsibility to do anything other than create. Right. But I do think that Kenya has to consider the feedback that comes back from that or has to at least be open to the fact that there will be critique of whatever it is um, that he puts out, because I don't think he has a responsibility to represent anyone other than himself. And I think that that is is one of the challenges of being a, a marginalized creator is like always feeling like you have to represent everybody. Right. Um, which mm -hmm. you can't do. But I do think that, first of all, that Hollywood Reporter piece that Kenya did, Jesus Christ, it was a lot. But I think that in, in a situation like Kenya's, Kenya doesn't really seem to care. And like that is a question more for Kenya's audience um, and the people who participate in his work um, than it is for what Kenya will continue to do. And if people stop consuming the content, if people start, you know, boycotting or complaining to ABC or Netflix or BET Studios or whomever, I think that's when it then becomes a problem for King and Barris. Um, to the earlier piece about like colorism always pandering to to light skinned folks, I'm fascinated by that feedback and also have to acknowledge like because the, the language was why do colorism conversations always try to be inclusive and nice to light skinned people? I think we can be nice to whoever. Um, so I just want to point that piece out. We can always be kind. But I do think that there's an element of the conversation that the only challenging part about it for me is because I said last week or two weeks ago when we did this, the first episode, I have to acknowledge like colorism does not work in both directions. Right. So like when black, when darker skinned or brown skinned, when folks that are darker than me, I'll put it that way, are speaking to me about their experience of colorism. And even if it is anti light skinned for the lack of better conversation, that that is not me experiencing <laughs> colorism because that is not the same. The only asterisk I'll have here is that sometimes I do feel like the conversations about colorism do, sometimes they do tend to erase the fact that light-skinned Black people are still Black and do still have a Black experience, do experience racism in ways that do not always look the same as darker-skinned people. But like the experience of racism is still uh, present for light-skinned people. So... That's the only um, response that I would have as far as uh, the Queen Speaks question or the conversation that we're having about colorism and light-skinned folks in particular. What you got, Portia? To Jared's last point, you know, both can definitely be true. You can be a victim of racism and also benefit from colorism because Absolutely. like anything else, privilege exists on a spectrum. It all affects us differently based on the identities we have and how we present to the world. So I completely understand the frustration that fellow darker skinned people have when that does happen, because it's really just deflection at play, which really means it's also white supremacy at play, because that's mm -hmm. exactly what happens 
when we try to address racism to white people and they suddenly make it a crying competition about the time, I don't know, whatever traumatic event happened in their lives and we're all supposed to just form this band of support around them and stroke them like that judge did in the <laughs> in the Botham Jean case with the woman mm-hmm. who killed him. Mm-hmm. So it's like you really can't win. And I don't think that's what you were saying, Jared, but I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that every time colorism comes up, darker-skinned people are saying light-skinned people aren't black enough. No, that's... I know that's not what you're saying. What I've experienced is that's more so a projection that comes out from any light-skinned person that's offended. And the weird Mm -hmm. irony is, again, you're leaning into colorist rhetoric to get what you want, you know, by being the loudest, by being the most emotionally charged, that's Mm going to allow you to dominate the conversation. And what is that if not colorist, especially if you are the lightest person in the room? And the irony of it is, as much as you say you're not Black enough, in the media's eyes, especially for Black women, you are the go-to when they want to, for lack of a better phrase, tick that nigger box. They go to you. Mm -hmm. They go to someone with your aesthetic. So I would love to touch on that because a friend of mine said to me, this was a couple of years ago now, he is an actor who is, I would say, medium brown skinned, and he told me about his experience as a brown-skinned actor on television. And he said that he has found, again, in his experience, that when a show wants to cast a Black person, a Black character, they will cast a darker-skinned Black person. But when they want to just have a Black actor filling a role, they will put a light-skinned Black person into it. And and like when it's like a mainstream white show or something, I think that is probably hopefully becoming less true. But I'm sure that it is it still has like some some truth to it. But he was saying that like when they want the character to have like a fully black experience, they are more likely to cast a person who is medium to darker skin. And I just thought that was a, an interesting perspective that I hadn't heard before. I wonder, and I would love to hear as the actress here, I would love to hear your thoughts on that, Portia. But I wonder if if that assertion um, breaks down and is different when you go even further. Because I, I feel like I feel like with black men, when they want the black man to be be black, I feel I feel like that that read of them casting a darker skinned black man um, uh, goes. Um, but I don't I'm more so on on Portia's side when it comes to black women. That feels I mean, I think we, we, we see multiple um, options where it's a lighter skinned black woman because she she in their eyes gives them the black card, but not too black. But then if they want the black woman character to be sassy, hood, ghetto, whatever where we want to come up with, then they go darker. Traumatized. Black skin. Women. Right, but Traumatized. That's, yeah. But that's the point, right? Like the, mm. the quote unquote blacker they want the experience of the character to be, the darker skin that person will probably be in casting. Um, because, you know, we've seen more than enough times when they've wanted just a black character that it'll even be a biracial person, right? Who is really fair skinned um, that will come in to play the black person. But Portia, you probably have more experience or perspective on this than either one of us. Mm -hmm. So for anyone who's not familiar with the casting world, it's important to consider this. 
they basically put everything together like a basic box of crayons. And so what I mean by that is there's typically only one of each colour, with the exception being white. And while that varies from show to show and what each person in the higher-ups wants, for most people, there is only one space for a black person. And as you've already hit on before, that usually goes to a black man. I'd say a majority of the things I audition for, they're specifically asking for a black person. And sometimes they'll even reference a darker skinned person that they want you to match that vibe. So I'm thinking, great, this is going to work to my advantage because I do fit that description. So, you know, I get to a certain point, I'm mad excited, and then the casting comes out and it's someone that looks like Jared's cousin every time. Okay, first of all, don't get my <laughs> No, I mean, I think these are, these are interesting things because also, like, I mean, this isn't always necessarily about colorism, but I think about how uh, the conversations I've had with my agents over the years regarding news, right? And I, I mm-hmm. think I've talked about this on the show before. When I was going out for a show that it was like a morning show and, like, I'm already really, you know, questioning morning shows because I don't want to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't like getting up at 7. But, like, when... <laughs> just being real. But... I looked at the show that my agent was sending me out for and I was like, they already have a black person on the show and a black guy at that. Like, they're not going to give you two out of three out of the three people. Right. And like, I think that we've we've seen that with when it comes to race and ethnicity. But I don't think that there's enough consideration for the extra intersection that is colorism um, when it comes into like, oh, are we going to have two dark skinned black people on this show? Like, mm-hmm. that is a thing that I don't think gets discussed nearly enough. I did want to one note because I brought up Kenya Barris. Kenya Barris also wrote on um, Girls Trip. And so we have a, a little bit more, a lot more darker colored folk in Girls Trip. So I wanted to say that. But y'all talking about the casting of it all reminded me of Queen and Slim. When Queen and Slim was going around, there was a, maybe it was Queen and Slim or maybe it was, it was one of Lena's things and this i guess the sides or the act the description of the type of actor they Mm. wanted she was very specific that she wanted darks like a dark-skinned person in the role and so in the character description she said something to the it was written down something to the effect of like if she was a slave she would be in the field or something like that to convey that like we want a dark-skinned girl and that is a, I guess, interesting approach to, like, go about trying to, like, specify that you want a darker-skinned person. But I'd love to hear from you, Portia, just about, like, navigating, you know, what roles you choose, you and your team choose to send you out for, why you all say yes to them, et, et cetera, and, like, how colorism shows up in in that experience for you. I'm really lucky in the sense that I've gone out for a good range of roles. Like, I've always been a fully-fledged character who, you know, maybe I'm an athlete, maybe I'm a student, maybe I'm an engineer. I go out for a lot of sci-fi stuff too, which I was not expecting. But, you know, if it pays, it pays. So that's what I love about the stuff that I do because it makes it clear that you're not just trying to make me like the hood bitch. And the one time mm-hmm. I had an audition like that, I explicitly was like, I'm not fucking doing this. 
for that same reason, especially because the setup of it was very much like a reality TV type situation and white people were literally like watching in amazement with their popcorn. I think that was in the description. And I was like, absolutely the fuck not. Interesting. So um, I'm lucky that I haven't really had anything like that come my way since. That being said, it's very clear that when I get those roles and I'm in the room, it's a very specific choice they made with me because, you know, as a black queer woman, typically go out for American roles, so I'm not going in sounding like this. They're just like, oh, she's going to tick these three different boxes and we're mm-hmm. going to be good. And like going back to that box of crayons analogy, like I did a commercial once, I was the only black person. There was a white guy and an Asian woman. And then the lead, lead actor was also a white man because, of course, you know, more than two white men can exist in the same place. Right. But no one else can because if there's two black men, it's a gang or whoever else. <laughs> you know, if it's, if, it's, <laughs> if it's two black women, they're throwing out terms like, oh, maybe this is more of a UK thing. But if there's two black women, they'll throw out terms like all oh, the terrible twos are all double trouble because they just assume we're about to fuck mm-hmm. shit up when we're really mm-hmm. just sitting there eating our food sometimes we don't even know each other we're just standing next to each other but <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay this is great like you're clearly like going out of that stereotype when you book me but then I'm also that only one mm-hmm. and with the specific role I had in the prom for instance I was called, I didn't have a name. They just called me the internet student. And there was about, I don't know, nine of us. And I was the one of two non-white people who wasn't mixed. Like every other person who would be a quote unquote person of color, fuck that term, had a white dad specifically. Mm. So mm. it's just kind of like, okay, that's clearly involved in that decision. Otherwise, you wouldn't be scared to have more than one of us. And even when casting changed and they did bring in the black women the same shade as me, only one of us made the final cut. Mm. Wait, I want to. I want you to unpack your resistance to the phrase people of color. Well, first of all, I think it's colored person backwards. Mm. Well. Say that. And. <laughs> okay. If we're really trying to move forward, why are we basically like flipping and reversing terms that we deemed offensive for previous generations in our family that are most probably still alive going through? Well, also, I think it's just another case where you try and create this catch all experience that we all go through. Mm-hmm. When that's not the case, there's so many nuances, they are connected, but they're not the same. And it always comes at the detriment, more often than not, of black women and femmes. Mm-hmm. So why am I going to align with a term that is used in a way that constantly shuts me out? Okay. Why would I align with a term mm-hmm. that is afraid to call me what I am, which is a black woman? Period. We had a bit of this conversation in the BIPOC episode, um, or BIPOC kind of sucks, I think is the title of, of the episode. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated in the ways that we try to name blackness black or brownness if we use that language and i i guess even when we're having conversations about colorism colorism has also been interesting to me in the ways that it is not a uniquely black experience but it's also a black experience right mm-hmm. especially if we think about 
South Asian folks versus Eastern Asian folks, or if we look at Latino folks, like there's so many different interesting instances of colorism that all still boil down to the same thing of white supremacy, right? Like mm-hmm. your closeness, your proximity to whiteness makes you more acceptable, makes you more um, attractive, makes you less threatening, makes you smarter or whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's always been an interesting thing to, to have to engage. And I, I do think also, as we, we look at, if there is a a hierarchy of privilege, which challenging in and of itself, um, mm. again, that I think we have to consider a lot more about this piece of an intersection that doesn't get considered. Yeah, definitely. Refinery29 did a really good article about this that came out last week. And mm-hmm. I, I think what I like about that article in comparison to ones that have been written prior to that is the fact that it's not afraid to go in on those specifics. It's not afraid to say, this is how it affects men versus women, or this is how it showed up in this project. This is how it showed up in that project. And for me, it really personalized something that I can remember from a very early stage, even if I didn't have the language for it, there was always something in the back of my mind saying, this is not right. This is not okay. Mm. I know it's not quite racism, but it's something very close that I don't like. And that moment was when that switch out happened in My Wife and Kids with the actors who Mm. played Claire. Mm. It all of a sudden went from like this beautiful dark-skinned woman whose name I do not remember, which probably for a reason. Google it, Jared. To um, Jennifer Nicole Freeman. Mm-hmm. And it was, all they really did was like, oh, you look different. And she's like, yeah, it's because I, I wore my hair down. You know, her long, mm-hmm. wavy, three-something hair that the actress before her didn't have. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with um, the, the Fresh, Fresh Prince, Prince, right? Yeah. Switching from Janet Hubert to, you know, light-skinned Aunt Viv. I don't know, I don't know her name. Diane or Deborah. Start with a D. Daphne Maxwell Reed. Daphne. I got the D right. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but we've seen, but we we've seen it happen a number mm-hmm. of times, and that's like those are the obvious ways, right, in which we see colorism show up in media. Go ahead, Jared. I just want to make sure we speak the name of the actress that played Claire Marie Kyle on uh, My mm-hmm. Wife and Kids. For season one, it was Jazz Ray Cole. Uh, in seasons two through five, it was Jennifer Freeman. Jazz mm-hmm. Ray Cole, that yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we 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 see it happening over and over, and we that Refinery Twenty Nine article, we'll link it in the show notes for folks um, who haven't caught it. But that was uh, Laura, our producer, um, brought that to to our attention. I remember, I think a couple years ago, somebody tweeted out they were trying to put a list together of like darker skinned black women in particular who are like leading ladies. Um, and, uh, and I think they were trying to do it specifically under like 35 or 40 or something like that age wise. Right. Cause like there are so many folks who we can think of from like the heyday of black TV and black cinema that are darker skin, whether that's Regina King or Regina Hall, both of the Reginas, um, Taraji is brown skin, etc. But like they're all over a certain age. And when you look at the darker skin, black women who, um, are leading their own TV shows. Who, who even have jobs, you know, like consistent checks on TV shows that are under that 40 range. It it it's a handful of people, right? Who who have who 
have those opportunities and it is difficult to like come up with those with those particular names um i just wanted to say that i have no 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 question attached to it well it's interesting that you say that because i'm thinking about um carrie washington and viola davis right and Mm -hmm. like carrie washington being the first black woman to lead a network show in 30 plus years when scandal started um, and then Viola Davis coming in with How to Get Away with Murder. And the conversation was always about um, Viola Davis's age and her being a Black woman. But I don't feel like enough of the conversation was about her being a dark-skinned Black woman, right? And I think mm. I've heard Viola speak about that specifically, but it was always like, oh, wow, this, you know, this older Black woman, which, cringe, but like this, this black woman of a particular age is getting to be sexy and all of these different things. But like, I don't think people paid enough attention to the fact that she's a dark skinned black woman that is getting to be this, this unusual um, character that we don't get to see enough of. So not until there, I don't know if you remember that, that classically beautiful New York times uh, situation. There was an article and they were saying that she was not classically beautiful. I believe that was Viola Davis. Um, and then that's when I feel like we, we started seeing at least more public conversation about her being dark skinned as well as all those other things that you listed. Um, but Portia, you look like you were about to say something. I know personally when I tried to think of it because I think that's an interesting middle ground of being brown-skinned, right? Not just as an actress, but in general. Like, mm. as much as colorism works against you, there's also weird cases, like when being an actress, where it works in your favor. And I say that because if they do pick someone who's not light-skinned, my skin tone is as dark as they are usually willing to go. Because other than Lupita mm. Nyong'o, Jodie Turner-Smith, Where else are you seeing women that dark of that age who were like doing bits? And even then, Lupita came to fame by playing a slave. Jodie came to fame by being in a film that's heavily criticized for being trauma porn. So Mm -hmm. it seems that we can't win because the comedian Gina Yashere made this joke in her stand up before. And this is like almost a decade old, but it still rings true where she's like, as a black woman, in the industry, they expect you to look like either Halle Berry or Precious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what funny. has really changed since? Because, I, yeah, that's nothing's really fucking changed since. That's the sad thing. I'm looking at this uh, coverage of the Viola Davis story. This happened in 2014, and there's an Essence piece that talks about it. And I think, like, we there's so much language that we use that we don't recognize the white supremacy in, right? Like the phrase classically beautiful, that means white and blonde and, you know what I mean? And thin and, you know, a certain height and like all of these different things. That's white supremacy bullshit. Portia, we are super grateful to have you uh, on the show today. Can you tell people where they can find out more about your YouTube channel? Where can people find out more about uh, the work that you do and follow it? Just Google my name. Oh, period. Well, yes, <laughs> I heard that. Well, all right. Um, I'd say follow me on Instagram, but I don't really post like that, and I feel like that's what the people want these days. So, I mean, follow me if you want to, but no she said follow me at your own risk. <laughs> <laughs> 
And just another shout out, just another shout out to your scene in prom. To me, it's the best scene of the entire movie. And not just because you're in it. I didn't really like the movie like that. But your scene made me cry in a very bad movie. And that's no shot to you. Um, Let's get these checks in the name of Jesus. Well, in the name of whomever. (laughs) Don't say nothing, Portia. You ain't got to say nothing. It's all right. (laughs) We're going to take a break. When we come back, why y'all hate us so much and listener feedback and our dishonorable mentions. And I have, I got some things to say. He got too many, y'all. That's fine. You can tweet or post using the hashtag FantiFam. We'll be jumping in responding to your posts on Twitter and Instagram from at FantiPodcast. Want to know what you think about this colorism conversation, unless it is something anti-light-skinned, because my feelings are apparently (laughs) fragile because I'm light-skinned. We'll be right back. Since the dawn of time, screenwriters have taken months to craft their stories. But now, three Hollywood professionals shall attempt the impossible. Break a story in one hour. That's right. Here on Story Break, I, Freddie Wong, Matt Arnold, and Will Campos, the creators behind award-winning shows like Video Game High School, have one hour to turn a humble idea into an awesome movie. Now, an awesome movie starts with an awesome title. I chose The Billionaire's Marriage Valley. Mine was Christmas Pregnant Paradise. (laughs) Okay, next we need a protagonist. So I've heard Wario best described as libertarian, (laughs) Mario. And of course, every great movie needs a stellar pitch. In order to get to heaven, sometimes you gotta raise a little hell. (laughs) That's the tagline! Check out Story Break every week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jordan Morris, creator of the Max Fun scripted sci-fi comedy podcast, Bubble. We just released a special episode of Bubble to celebrate the launch of our new graphic novel. At SF Sketchfest in 2019, we recorded a live show with Allison Becker, Eliza Skinner, Mike Mitchell, Christella Alonzo, and special guests Jean Grey, Jonathan Colton, Jesse Thorne, Nick Weiger, and a bunch of other cool folks. We suspect he'll show signs of mutation when in a state of excitement. Now, Annie matched with him on Tinder, so she's going to act as the honeypot. I do enjoy being called a honeypot. Hey, you know what's better than honey? Gravy. (gasps) Oh, yeah, can I be the gravy sack? Out now on MaximumFun.org and wherever you get podcasts. And pick up the graphic novel at your local bookstore today. Welcome back, beautiful people. We're going to get into our listener feedback segment. Um, and ironically, I pulled a, um, a tweet, what it's called, an uh, email what? from someone what? who I believe they responded to um, when we first mentioned the in the heights of it all. And we didn't necessarily talk about it or go deep on it in our Fanti segment with Portia, but I wanted to read out this email. It comes from Natasha Gay. Um, they use they even pronouns. Um, I just got done digging through all the In the Heights controversy because I also love the musical and was disappointed that Lynn and the crew didn't have enough competency to remember that colorism exists. Or they didn't think it was a problem? Question mark. Anyway, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about what the production team, especially Lin-Manuel and John M. Chu as public figures, should be doing beyond apologies during the rest of the film's release and promotion. Lynn said that he will try to do better in future projects, but are there things he should be doing in the meantime? Also, John and Chu said it's a, quote, fair conversation to have and 
conversation is almost a trigger word for me now because it's vague enough to fizzle out immediate actions that should take place. But should there be an organized solution-oriented conversation? Question mark. Personally, I would like to see the production team be more specific about what actually went wrong if it's because they didn't hire any Afro-Latinos that would have catched anti-blackness or if they should have restricted more of the auditions to only dark-skinned Afro-Latinos, etc. Go. I don't really know what else can be done as far as in the Heights is concerned or their press tour and things like that. But I, I do like the piece that you said here. You said, but should there be an organized solution oriented conversation? I think that Lin-Manuel could definitely be a part of discussions about colorism, right? And how his work has participated in supporting colorism maybe. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe with John Chu as well. I think that maybe they could do some work that works on future projects and, and finding ways that they can try to do better about eliminating colorism. I don't know that there's anything else to do for In the Heights, though. I mean, number one, the press tour is over and it, it's not um, out anymore. But I do think that going forward, they can do more. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, they probably will do some sort of campaign around around award season. They'll probably likely do something to get, you know, critics awards or SAG awards or whatever, right? Um, and so it might be interesting to see what types of, of panel conversations they can um, have around colorism and the industry and all of that. But also conversations like panel discussions and stuff like that also end up being not useful. Well, but I also think like, when for your consideration, like awards campaigns come around, right? I would wonder if Warner Brothers is even going to push the movie now because, like, I think it's I think it's going to make it more difficult for that film to do well at award season. Well, see, I disagree. Actually, if I was on their team, the first event that I do to pr to do the FYC campaign for In the Heights would be the conversation about colorism featuring members of the cast and activists because. The, the game has changed today, I think, for promotion promotion and promoting particular movies. I think they fumbled the ball this go around because obviously they weren't. And we could, we, talk, we could have a conversation about, you know, why they should have been media trained and specifically media trained by a black person and all that later. I just think that a lot of panels and conversations end up, you know, being preaching to the choir or falling on deaf ears. And so it always comes down to the action. And I think going forward... In John's projects and Lynn Manuel's projects, hopefully they're now sensitized to to it, and and we see we see the actions change. I like that idea. The only pushback I would have on that is that I would want to hear that conversation from Lynn, John, maybe the casting directors. Right? I don't know that the actors have to to eat that per se, like because they didn't cast themselves. But that's also you know allyship, right? That's that means fair. your 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 lead people need to, and not just the black one, need to be in in these conversations. They need to uh, publicly atone for their their fuck ups, right? Um, yeah. And then talk about the ways in which even even you as an actor, you at least can say something to somebody when you right. go to the table read and you look around and everybody you know pass the paper bag test. You can at least say something at minimum. But okay. that's the listener feedback segment. We're going to move on to our dishonorable mentions. Um, opportunity for us to call out stories that you all should be paying attention to for their foolishness or for their good. Jarrett, you've got 1,200 things here. Well, so I'm going to say this because I came in here with notes and shit, fully prepared to give not three but four honorable uh, mentions to extraordinary black women this week. But 
fuckery is always getting in the way. I almost pushed the celebratory honorable mentions to next week because they'll still be worthy of honor. But it occurred to me that that is exactly how white supremacy and erasure of black history has been working since the founding of, of at least this country. Um, and, you know, I run shit around here with my delightful co-hosts. So fuck the rules and Sorry, Laura. Hopefully we won't go over time. I'm going to be as quick as I can. Number one, I want to give a shout out to Nadira.p on Instagram. That's N-A-D-I-R-A-H dot P as in Paul. She is just hilarious. I was sharing all of her um, her stories over uh, in my Insta stories this past weekend. She is a young black Muslim woman who just has a critique about everything. And she's hysterical. Y'all should go check her out. Uh, Lene, I think her last name is Vani. If y'all don't know her, I don't know what you're doing. She's the one that's always starting off her weekly videos with, I'm gonna keep it black, but I'm gonna keep it brief. She is a genius. And I feel like I really want to have her on the show for something. I don't know what for, but she's fantastic. I forgot to mention that last Thursday when our episode dropped was Jackie Washington Day which was a crime as a black homosexual. Um, I just want to give that praise to Jennifer Lewis. This is the second time we're speaking her name in this episode. If you don't know what Jackie Washington is, Jackie, Jackie Washington Day is, Google it. And then finally, Normani, that song, that video, but all of that. But also one of the things that was interesting to me in Normani and her Insta stories over the weekend there were so many folks that were talking about the experience of working on the video and how Normani treated everyone on set um, and how she was looking out for all of her people, making sure that they got photographed, making sure that they looked good, making sure that their hair was was perfect, making sure that their outfits worked for them, all of those different things in ways that you just don't tend to see. So shout out to Normani. If y'all haven't heard Wild Side, get your life together. Now I have two dishonorable mentions here. Number one is going to Frito-Lay which is difficult for me because I do love a ruffle. I do love a sour cream and cheddar moment. It has changed my life and it has been a part of my life since I was a child. But apparently the factory employees are on strike after some outrageous work conditions and forced overtime. Apparently they have folks working 10, 12 and longer hours, seven days a week for months and years on end. They, according to the employees, um, people have like dropped and had heart attacks on their production line. It is outrageous. And um, their their employees have finally come together in a boycott. Frito-Lay is owned by Pepsi, which they're calling for people to boycott both Pepsi and Frito-Lay for the time being. And then finally, Texas Governor Greg Abbott should just put on a white hood and go burn a cross in front of the Texas State Capitol building. Yikes. <laughs> the way that they are trying to pass bills now saying that white supremacy is, quote, not morally wrong to erase the the work of Martin Luther King Jr., of, you know, Susan B. Anthony, which she's challenging on her own, but a different conversation. Cesar Chavez, United, like it's, it is egregious. I'll put the link into the um, into the episode description. Um, there's a piece in HuffPost that really explains it. And uh, Julian Castro, I tweeted it out and I've been tweeting about it. It is absurd and outrageous. And I, Texas is just its own fucking shit show. Shout out to our listeners in Texas. But you know that your government is some bullshit. And I'm done. Well, thank you for that soliloquy. You also ruined our plan on how to transition from dishonorable mentions into um, Black History is Happening no, Every Day. Yes, you did. Um, no, but my honorable mention was going to be Normani as well. This was supposed to be a joint honorable mention because the video... My God. I mean, 
my, my, and this is how I know God is a black woman, okay? Because my God. A busy black woman at that. (laughs) Oh, she got her hands full. She got her hands full. So that's my only honorable mention is to Normani. And we're going to transition straight from that into. Yes. In honor of Normani's aforementioned new track and video, we're celebrating that sample that has made the song such a hitter for so many. The song samples Aaliyah's hit song, One in a Million. Note, because I think you pointed this out in our production meeting yesterday. (laughs) R. Kelly is full stop canceled. And for some reason, it did not even occur to me that that would also include some of Aaliyah's discography, which I'm feeling a way about, but understand. We did the research. This song is not produced, written, or otherwise defiled by that man. Um, at least not according to Wikipedia and a couple of the other resources. If y'all know, find out that I'm wrong, sorry, sue me. But you Let us know. We'll cut the whole shit out the show. Listen, no, we won't. <laughs> um... <laughs> Laura, hit the music. Like it's resembling every day. <laughs> wow, that was special. You should leave that in the show. Um, <laughs> um, just in love with Aaliyah. Um, may her music hit streaming platforms at some point. Um, shout out to the fuckery over at the estate. So that. That is it for us. We want to plug something that was just announced earlier this week. Fanti. It's going British. What does that mean? Well, it's been pretty British this episode. We had Idris Elba, (laughs) Portia, um, and we are going to be part of the London Podcast Festival coming up in September, which is really cool um, that we're excited to be a part of. Um, We want to know what ideas do y'all have, especially all of our listeners over in Britain, Yes, let us know. Hit us up on the socials, all of the places. Tell us what 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 topics you think we should discuss. This will be our first live show. It is virtual, though. So those of you who are listening in the States, if you're interested, you can also purchase tickets. We'll have the links and all of that on our social media pages. Go ahead and support us. Why not? It's going to be on Sunday, September 5th. Um, It is going to be 8.30 p.m. if you are in London. That'll be 3.30 Eastern time here in the States, 12.30 p.m. Pacific on Sunday, September 5th. Go get your tickets because, as Travel said, it's going to be our first live show. So you don't know what to expect. Yes. For all of y'all that listen over uh, in the U.K., we we see your numbers there and we really appreciate it. Yes. And so if this conversation, this episode piqued your interest and you want more of this. Good, good. Check out other episodes that have a related, we're going, related conversation. I'm going to suggest episode 17 titled Bland AF, The Importance of Representation and Appreciating Mediocre Black Black Art. That's a conversation where we talked a little bit about Kenya Barris' other show, Black as Fuck. Um, Or you can check out BIPOC Kinda Sucks episode as well. We thank you all so much for listening. If you're checking us out on Apple Podcasts, we ask that you leave us a five-star rating and a review. Let us know what you think about the show. If you have a comment or a suggestion about this week's show, you can tweet at us using the hashtag FantiFam and use our handles on Twitter and Instagram at FantiPodcast. And you can always email us at Fanti at MaximumFun.org If you would like to become a financially supporting member of the Fanti Fam, you can do that by joining the Maximum Fun family at MaximumFun.org slash join. As always, our music is brought to you by the one and only Corey, C-O-R dot E-C-E. Wherever you get Slayworthy Audio, he just released a virtual, like clips from a virtual um, concert that he did, so be sure to check that out and our graphics are brought to you as always by the folks over at moon house creative led by the one and only ashley went our producer is laura swisher this is a production of maximum fun
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported. That was perfect.